This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. For more information, go to setonhome.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Hi, J.D. How you doing, man? Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a Friday. It's a Friday at the end of a very long week, and um, was, this a, was this a four-day week? It was a four-day week. It does not feel like that. <laughs> It, it it does to me because I have not accomplished very much this week, and I've been feeling very guilty about that all all week. I, I probably manifested that to you repeatedly, but I've been working on some projects, as you know, that have just like I worked on a project for almost two days, and then I then it didn't bear any fruit, and I had to basically can it. And then I've been working on some other projects that haven't really borne fruit. So for me, it is a week of uh, I'm like I still haven't gotten a lot of things done for my Monday morning or my Tuesday morning checklist, and I feel bad about the few things that I've taking a stab at i suppose well i i think you've been doing fine and okay we've we have a lot of news up on the site this week we have we had do. more news in the last four days up on the site than we have traditionally had over a two-week stretch so we've been we've been plenty busy i have gloriously failed to pay my taxes which is something i want to do today i haven't paid my pay, to pay your taxes to... for the first two quarters yeah and i, I forgot to do that too i was feeling bad yeah, well, I, w- I almost got there today. I started printing <laughs> off the vouchers, and then I ran out of ink. Through. Oh, man. I also have a fairly substantial parking ticket from the District of Columbia that I need you to sell. You do? Where did you Where did you park, and why was it illegal? Uh, well, it was one of those... Okay, so normally I'm very... Having spent most of my life in, this, in and around the city of London, I'm used to legal parking being ruinously expensive. So your average DC parking ticket of like 30 bucks, 35 bucks. Um, which you tend to only get like one time in five. You park somewhere illegally. I normally think of it as just like great value like for money. Like that would be a good price or whatever? Yeah, it's great value for money. It's like you can't park legally most places. I, I used to have to park um, for that amount, so I'm I'm happy to pay the ticket. But this one, I so DC's got these like evacuation routes and snow routes and stuff, and they hit, there are windows of time usually around Russia that you can't park there. And if you do, very often you'll get towed. I didn't get towed, but I misread the sign and I thought it said, you know, only, you know, maximum two hour parking between these hours. And I thought, oh, great. So after that hour, I'm fine. But actually what it was, no, no parking at all after that time. Oh, so you got a big ticket. I got a big ticket. And um, I haven't told my wife about it yet. But yeah, (laughs) I need to I need to pay that. Okay, good. Well, anyway, speaking of people who uh, people trying people doing things in Washington, D.C., how's that for a transition? That that was silky smooth. Good job. I was going to say when I was talking about not getting that much done this week, I was going to say, speaking of people not getting that much work done this week, um, I want to talk, let's talk, Ed, about, uh, it's fr- we're recording this show on Friday afternoon, uh, which is, um, usually we'd be recording it on Thursday, so we're kind of on track. Uh, we're recording this show on Friday afternoon, and this morning, um, President Biden, the President of the United States of America, signed an executive order, which the White House says is aimed at um, securing and protecting access to reproductive health care services and um an abortion referential executive order have you had a chance to read this yet i have i i've read the sort of top lines of it i didn't get too far in the weeds because it was my understanding from the top lines that this doesn't do all that much well yeah that's what i want to talk about so so this has made a lot of headlines obviously and a lot of i have gotten texts from a lot of catholics with questions about it what does it mean what's the impact of it did biden basically um end around the Supreme Court, these kinds of things. And so I have read 
some uh, of the executive order and as much as I was able to get read before the show and then read the White House's uh, briefing materials on it and, you know, which, albeit those are briefing materials, um, you can, if you want to say I didn't do the full homework, okay. Um, but read the briefing materials on it and started reading the executive order and uh, it doesn't, it's very interesting because it doesn't do that much. It um, it says that federal employees can like take time off to travel to another state to get an abortion. It says that um, the Department of Health and Human Services should figure out what steps they can take to protect ex- and expand access to abortion uh, care and consider whether they can make it easier for people to um, access uh, pharmaceuticals that you know that produce sort of chemical pharmaceutically produced chemical abortions. Poison, and, I think, um, is what it's normally yeah, poison referred to. It. Is, yeah. I think that's I think that's fair. And to see what steps it can take to make available um, more freely to people contraception, and that the uh, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services should write a report about this in the next thirty days about what his department is up to and what they could be up to. Um, it says that. Uh, it, it says some things about protecting the privacy of uh, sort of health information, but it's not really clear what any of that uh, means. But then an interesting thing that it does is uh, the president has also directed the secretary of HHS in consultation with the attorney general and the chair of the FTC to consider options to address deceptive or fraudulent practices um, and to protect, ac- including online, and to protect access to accurate information. Here's what that is. That, insofar as I can tell, is the crisis pregnancy center um, attack plan mandate. In other words, yes. that the attorney general and the chair of the of the Federal Trade Commission should sit down together and figure out if there's anything they can do about the perniciousness of crisis pregnancy centers, which um, tell women that they provide them options other than abortion and then do so, and are sometimes accused of sort of uh, engaging in deceptive practices by, um, by advertising that they're, you know, an alternative to abortion or pregnancy care center or something like that, and which right. as, I think as as I can abortion tell. people have made very, very much of over the past couple of weeks. Well, I mean, the, the, this goes to show you the sort of insanity of the the pro-abortion way of thinking and talking is that they're, as near as I can understand it, their allegation that crisis pregnancy centers engage in deceptive practices is that they say they offer um, help and support for women in crisis pregnancies. And, of course, the only acceptable form of support or recognizable form of support in a crisis pregnancy, as far as they're concerned, is an abortion. So if you are referencing crisis pregnancies and you're not providing abortion, you are ipso facto being disingenuous, according to them, um, which is a wonderful example of the kind of insanity of evil that you get into very quickly with this sort of thing. It is. But let's – okay, so let's talk about it. So the, so this executive order, which President Biden made very much of and um, which I've seen a lot of pro-life people make very much of and be concerned about, to my way of thinking, unless I'm missing something, and that's possible, um, certainly – but to my way of thinking, um, there is not a whole lot of there there. So w- what is this about? Um, this well, I mean, is what, it's, what it's not about, as I've understood, is any state which has banned abortion, and several have, abortion is still banned in those states. Right. Mm-hmm. Any yeah. state which has limited abortion, the abortions are still limited in those states. Yeah. And the White House press secretary, the relatively new one whose name escapes me, but I think she's French, um, she's said Asian, as much. actually, which is actually... Cool. Well, okay, so French Creole, yeah. Okay, cool. That explains the surname. Um, but yeah, the the White House press secretary said uh, when sort of quizzed about this and saying, no, it, abortion is still illegal in the states where abortion is illegal. And they said, well, could you, why, do, why doesn't the executive order allow abortions to be performed on federal property in those states? 
And the answer was, well, that would set a dangerous precedent. That would create a lot of, yeah, that would, that would create a lot of complexity and set a dangerous precedent. That's right. Well, I found that interesting and telling, actually, because trying to get, um, and this isn't particularly true of the, or not particularly, it is particularly true of the Biden administration, but it's not exclusively or especially true of the Biden administration. But to get a White House in this day and age to say, ooh, that might be a little bit of executive much. overreach. That yeah. might be a little much. It's like, wow, you, you, it really is a bad idea if you can get the White House to say, that might be dangerous. Like, most presidents these days will do pretty much anything they think they can get away with. So. so, okay, so coming back to it, so what is this about? Biden said today, President Biden said today that this is about um, uh, urging the Justice Department, the FTC, and other apparatus of the executive branch to do everything in their power to protect women seeking to invoke um, their rights. Uh, the, the, to do everything in, pow- in their power to protect women seeking to invoke their rights. But it, it, there's not a whole lot other than that sort of urging um, encouraging, asking that it actually happens in this executive order. Why did Biden sign it? Because he was getting a lot of pressure um, from the Democrats, uh, from the Democratic Party in Congress and uh, and in the Senate and sort of or Democratic leaders to um, do more about a decision from the Supreme Court that they disagree with and to use the power of the executive branch to do more about um, the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs that they disagree with. They were, uh, Biden was being urged, 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 push, push, push to do something. And um, there's not actually a whole lot that the executive branch can do about a decision from the Supreme Court that gives uh, legislative authority to the states, which is effectively what happened here. So Biden sort of came up with a package of things that he could do or encourage people to do or require reports about and then signed that. Um, it is my observation that many um, strong pro-abortion advocates are underwhelmed. Uh, by this uh, executive order, and and I am too, because the criticism uh, that pro-abortion advocates have made, and this is where it gets really interesting for Catholics, but the the criticism that so pro, some pro-abortion advocates have made is that this is a virtue signal. Why did Biden sig- sign this to signal his virtue on on you know from their perspective to signal his virtue on abortion to signal. Uh, um, his opposition to legal prohibitions on abortion or the regulation of abortion at the state level to signal his affirmation of abortion as um, uh, a right which should a sort of human right which should be protected in law for Catholics if that is what's going on here if what's principally going on here is something symbolic that's really really important because what Biden has effectively done apart from whatever he's done sort of legally or executively what Biden has effectively done is sort of stood out to make um, a rather definitive declaration on a position which goes beyond I'll respect the you know the, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court um, to um, this issue is so important that I will defy in, in as much as I can or sort of work around the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. It is, if it is a virtue signal, um, with regard to his status in the Catholic Church, I think it becomes particularly important. I, I want to be careful in, in how I respond because as I was saying to a friend of mine last night, um, you and I have only ever had three real fights <laughs> in the time that we've known each other and worked together, and they've all been on the same subject. And so if we come anywhere near that, I just want to be I don't think I don't think we need to come near our technical sort of nuanced differences about sort of how a bishop might Perhaps, respond to this. But no, the question is— The question is, was Biden's executive order, if it is, as most people seem to agree, either affirmingly or angrily— a virtue signal is he not making essentially a manifestation of his belief right is? or is he otherwise sort of you know is he in some way uh doing something to like definitively manifestly obstinately given that he's been warned by his own bishops and other bishops to step out um beyond um you know in co- in contrast to in de- in defiance of 
Catholic doctrine and the obligations of Catholic and public of Catholics in public life to respect the right to life of people from conception until after death. And the answer would seem to me to be, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. This strikes me as being, you know, more concrete because it is meant to be definitive. In other words, because it is supposed to um, sort of catalyze some action, it is a, it is a doing. You know, it is a, it doing, is a doing intended at it, sort of well, enabling is, access to abortion. I was about to say it is. It, it is uh, legally. It is exactly what it says on the page. It is an executive act. It is right. An Precis- act that's right. Yeah. Which carries into effect the will of executive power. It is an mm-hmm. act of governance in that sense. And it is, um, and he has, as near as I can tell, been extremely clear that um, he is doing everything in his power that he feels he can do, and he wishes he could do more. That, you know, um, it it seems to me to be the stated uh, belief and intention of President Biden that he would like to do everything he can to ensure there is maximal legal protection for and access to abortion in this country through all nine months of pregnancy, possibly right. beyond. And, I mean, that's um, it's quite a thing. So let's sort of talk about the status of that. So um, in the past, so Biden is resident in, um, in Washington, D.C., and um, I, I suppose you could say he probably has a quasi-domicile in Washington, D.C., and a domicile in the Diocese of Wilmington, Delaware. I, um, I would argue, and I have argued, that he has proper <laughs> domicile in both. Oh, right, because you because it's an official residence of the president. And you exactly. Have this I mean, idea it, technically, is. absent the fact that he's the president in any other um, in any other role or circumstance, I would agree that Biden is in D.C. for a stated period of time with the intent with the intention to return to Delaware. So, therefore, he'd be establishing quasi domicile in Washington. But because he is the head of state, and the head of state has an official residence, and that official residence for the head of state is a permanent status. Um, I, I would argue it's, it's, and you can have two domiciles. Yeah, no, you, you're it's not true. required and to never, have one and one quasi. And you I can applaud have two you, domiciles. Ed, for never allowing, you know, the letter of the law to stand in the way of your interpretation uh, of it. <sighs> I, I think that's great. So Biden has some, some kind of residence in, um, in, uh, and, and you, I, I'm sure would applaud me for, for sticking, you know, you would probably say slavishly, but I would say faithfully adhering faithfully to the text of the law. In any case, Biden has some kind of residence um, in Washington and some kind of residence in Delaware. And uh, to this point, his bishop in Washington, Cardinal Wilton Gregory, has said at times that Biden's um, position on abortion is not with the church. He said that last year at the National Press Club. Um, but he has also said that he doesn't think it's his place to sort of um, impose any kind of ecclesiastical sanction or any matter of discipline on Biden because he says he doesn't want to go to the table. Um, You know, he doesn't want to sit down to talk about this with a gun on the table. Uh, Biden's bishop in Delaware, who's relatively new, uh, had the good fortune of being able to say the last time he was asked about this, well, I'm relatively new. So uh, this is something I'm going to have to, you know, to which I'm going to have to give some thought, implying... um, (laughs) as it were, that he had never before given thought to the idea that he would be the bishop uh, of the place of residence of the president of the United States, a Catholic with pro-abortion position, even though I'm sure after the Nuncio called him, that's pretty much the first thing that he thought about, uh, other than obviously that he, I, I don't, you know, I don't think Delaware, does Delaware have an income tax? Maybe you're thinking about that. No, I don't think it does. Delaware is, I, I, the only thing I know about Delaware is that it has um, low taxes and high tolls. Oh, it has a very, very low income tax. Okay. Anyhow. So, you know, oh, he doesn't, it doesn't have any sales tax. So anyway, after thinking about those things, uh, you know, I have no doubt that he thought about it, but he had the good fortune of being able to say, I'm new here, so you're going to have to give me a little time. But clearly, um, this issue 
now becomes much more acute. And I have heard from many, many Catholics who say, who asked me today, are the bishops going to do anything? Is Biden's bishop going to do anything? Because this issue has become much more acute. Biden has now, as you said, made an executive act in favor of expanding and protecting access to to abortion, to, to say, I, I, I'll do everything in my power to make it possible for women to have abortions. And that would seem to go beyond merely having a political position or sort of merely supporting a piece of legislation to like actually doing something. And, and act, there are and abortions that will take place without Biden's action would not have taken place. Yeah. Now, I don't think you can say uh, that no, does that, not that, mean doesn't that make Biden, a material yeah. cooperation in any individual abortion. I'm not right, saying that. Yeah. You can't say that Biden has sort of the way the law talks about it is, has procured a particular abortion. No, he has, but he has done certainly that. done things which have made it, you know, at the, he has virtue signaled that he wants to enable abortion and he has done things which may in fact enable particular abortions. Yes. Okay. So where will bishops land? Um, I, I, I don't know. Did you reach out to the Archdiocese of Washington today? I sent a message to the Archdiocese of Washington. I did not receive a response, but given that the last time this was a live issue, the Archdiocese of Washington made it known, albeit accidentally, that it was their policy to ignore um, media inquiries. I I do not anticipate receiving a response. Yeah, I don't anticipate that you'll receive a response either. Um, and uh, I have not um, written to the to the Diocese of Wilmington, so I don't know if we'll receive a response there. But but what we know is that, you know, to this point, bishops have not said anything. And the possibility that Biden's bishops might sort of say anything, I think, is sort of mitigated or tempered or um, lessened. The possibility is, is lessened by the fact that the Pope, in an interview this week, seemed to signal um, or could be interpreted to have signaled that he that that kind of sacramental discipline, that sort of prohibiting a person doing these sorts of things from Holy Communion, would be, in his judgment, not pastoral. Uh, Which is weird, because he's previously said it's absolutely required that you do this. Yeah, he's in the, in the past he has said you have to do this if the situation arises, even if you don't like it, and you should try to be pastoral about it. But in an interview with Reuters this week, the Pope said, you know, it's it's unfortunate when a bishop becomes sort of more political than pastoral, when he was asked about Archbishop Cordelioni prohibiting Nancy Pelosi from receiving Holy Communion. So people who are, you know... You, it's it's always hard, I think, to read sort of the tea leaves of what the Pope meant in any given interview or any particular interview. But or what I the think Pope that, knows about the or what the Pope knows asked. about the situation. But I think that probably makes it all the more likely that that um, Biden's bishops are probably not going to say anything about this. Which for a lot of Catholics, and and I'm saying we're talking about this not because it's kind of like why won't Biden be punished, and you know we want to see that happen, but. But because for a lot of Catholics, it, it, it's clear to me just in the kind of texts that I get and the kind of questions that I get from people, this has become a real and earnest sort of stumbling block for the per, for the perception that Catholics have about what it means to exist in a hierarchical society and um, and what it means to exist with integrity as a Catholic. I think that there are, you know, not everyone. I think there are people who exploit this kind of thing for political purposes, and you know, we can't ignore that. Um, but at the same time, I think there are really Catholics who look at a person sort of openly defying such a sort of fundamentally serious teaching of the Catholic Church with no consequence whatsoever, and are at the very least discouraged or demoralized by that. There are. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, that's not the thing that discourages or demoralizes me about it. Um, what discourages and demoralizes me about it is this. I don't suspect that either of Biden's proper bishops um, don't believe what the Church teaches about abortion. I have I have no doubt in my mind that they absolutely believe what the church teaches about abortion. And I think they do too. And um, I don't think they're under any illusions about what Biden believes. Uh, but it seems to me that their decision 
not to take any um, action with regards to sacramental discipline says rather more about what those bishops may believe about the Eucharist than it does about what they believe about abortion. And that discourages me greatly because if one believes, as the church teaches um, explicitly in the catechism, in the magisterium, in the code of canon law, in, you know, in numerous authoritative papal documents, um, that the Eucharist is strong medicine and it can harm as well as heal, depending on how you receive it. And if the church teaches that to receive communion in a state of manifest grave sin is to do yourself immense spiritual harm, is to commit a blasphemy, is to heap hot coals on your own head, so to speak. Um, it seems to me that Biden's bishops are either extraordinarily callous towards the president and lacking in pastoral sensitivity and that they would let him sort of sacramentally self-mutilate like this every week, or they just don't actually believe what the church teaches about the power of communion. And I, I don't presume to have a window into their mind or souls and say which way it goes, but I'm just saying that it, it's difficult for me to interpret their action in any other way, that either they are aware of the effects that Biden receiving communion in a state of sin has on, on his soul, and they are sufficiently indifferent to it that they won't act to prevent him from harming himself that way, or they just don't believe that the harm is incurred. And I find, whichever one of those two it is, I find that very discouraging. Yeah, I, I don't know, Ed. I, I, I think that if you were to ask, you know, those bishops, and again, we're purely in the realm of speculative here, I think if you were to ask those bishops, do you believe what the Church teaches about the Eucharist and, and the consequence of sort of eating and drinking one's own condemnation and these things, I think they would affirm it. I, I don't think it's a question of belief. I think in in, uh, in doctrinal matters, or even sort of being thinking that those things are important, I think it is a kind of conditioning that has been part of the culture of the church for a long time by which bishops are, um, uh, by which bishops often can be habituated, not always, but by, by which bishops can be habituated to the idea that an important part of their ministry is sort of maintaining a kind of stasis that doesn't allow the boat to be rocked too much, that doesn't upset too many people, that doesn't, you know, and, and, and maybe I'm being very charitable there, but I think the way, I think part of the way you become a bishop, at least in some ecclesial cultures in the United States, is sort of to be a person who is sort of a reliable, moderating influence and doesn't allow situations to become um, in, inflamed. And as a consequence of that, I think bishops sometimes are conditioned to uh, take the path of, uh, a, a, of sort of least opposition and, um, and absolutely. so who, who's grumbling now? You know, kind of uh, the people grumbling now are people, you know, who are who can be seen as like conservative malcontents who, you know, are just like always unhappy about something, always frustrated about something. And you can't make them too happy. But, you know, it's it's not like we have The New York Times on our door sort of flaying us. And um, and so I think there's a way in which it can be seen as a sort of path of least opposition. I, I, I would abs I would absolutely be open to that. And I even think that that is probably the more likely of the two options. But again, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? That if that is the case, then the price of that action or inaction well, yeah, is, it, is it a relative indifference to the harm Biden is doing yeah. himself, which is, an un, which is a, I think, a very callous pastoral attitude. Yeah. To sort of say, well, okay, Biden may be condemning himself to hell, and it may be my job as his pastor to, to step in and try and mitigate or at least limit 
the the way in which he's doing that harm to himself, but that would kind of rock the boat. And, you know, sorry, Biden's just gonna have to shift for himself on this one and create a lot of problems. And I think there's even a, you know, to, to give the benefit of the doubt, I think there can even be a sense that, um, avoiding the sort of that sort of boat rocking, um, is a pathway to evangelization. Why? Because, um, Catholic culture in the United States, East coast Catholic culture in the United States is formed by, um, uh, the experience of immigrants kind of wanting to integrate into this country and sort of being habitually sort of oriented towards, you know, you fit in, fit in, don't be, you know, be, be a part of America, be a part of American culture, the American dream. Don't um, be weird or exceptional to that. And I think the church went through a period of time in this country in which she was so desperate to prove that one could be a Catholic and at the same time, and at the same time an American that she, just grew accustomed to shaving off the rough or unusual edges of Catholicism. And so there's this idea like, well, if we convince people that Catholicism isn't weird and it fits in nicely with mainstream culture, um, then, you know, they'll see that we're not so bad and, you know, maybe they'll want to be a Catholic or at the very least that, you know, Catholics won't have a hard time, even if that part is sort of implicit. I, I do think those things have sort of formed a, that, that don't rock the boat culture um, or formed it to excess in the United States. Um, and and that is part of what leads to to these kinds of things. Well, that may be, but if it's true, that's disastrous and explains oh, I mean, a lot of yeah, what's wrong with the church. To, because the, I'm the, just trying the to assess it, man. Is, I'm just trying to. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just, just saying that. Down, is, yeah. But again, your I, I, my reaction to all of the all of the very persuasive um, explanations you are offering. And is, please understand, I'm not trying to. I'm no, not trying I, to I, explain I'm away. I'm just trying to say, where does this come from? I think right, this is where I'm saying each each layer you're offering is like, well, that, <laughs> that points to an even worse crisis because Catholicism <laughs> is deeply weird and does not fit in with right, mainstream exactly. society and cannot and has to be a prophetic. Yeah, and trying against. is always an, is always a um, uh, you know uh, lost uh, tilting at windmills to some extent and a fool's errand and those kinds of things. Well, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that, so that's why I think it won't happen. So, I mean, layer after layer after layer, that's why I think it won't happen. Not because if push came to shove and you said to those guys, do you believe this? They would say yes, but it, it, there's a difference between do you believe this and does it sort of animate your vision? Do you believe this and is it so center, central well, as, to, the, to your as vision? Bishop so Michael Barber of Oakland said a few weeks ago, one of his brother bishops, it's not a question of whether they believe it or not. It's whether the question of they believe it matters enough to do something about it. Right. Yeah, that's right. That is, that's what he said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I don't think that that will um, happen, and um, and so there will be you know this ongoing thing, and I think you know we have to figure in one way or another. Um, it's funny we haven't talked about this in a little while because um, the bishops didn't have a meeting, a public meeting in June. They had a retreat, but you have to figure in one way or another. This will figure into lots of things which are sort of under discussion at the fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. My, I've just been thinking about the fall meeting lately because you know i've been thinking well what's going to be on the agenda will discussion it? well yeah will it yes um because there is sharp disagreement among the bishops that sort of manifested in the barber article and these kinds of things about kind of these questions about eucharistic integrity so to speak and um now there's this planning mode for the eucharistic revival which is already underway in the diocesan phase but which will have a big event and there's a planning mode for that and i think discussion about that will probably become the platform by which some bishops at least sort of choose to take the floor to make comments about Eucharistic integrity and pro-abortion politicians. And um, uh, probably I think there could be some sharp back and forth about that. You're skeptical. I that, uh, no, it's not. I, I think you're right. It will get some mention. I don't think it will dominate like it did June last year. No, oh, no, no, no. I don't think it I will think dominate. Most, I, I think most of the 
um, conference members will be uh, more than content to take the win on Dobbs and say abortion law is now a state level issue. And in my state, it is a greater or lesser concern because it is more or less illegal. And, and I think that's great. I mean, that's, that's what we need. And the real question will be, um, are the, are the bishops in, and we've, you know, we've written about some of this and, and looked ahead on some of this and talked to people in state Catholic conferences about some of this. Um, but it will, the question will be, are, are those bishops, um, in states that have prohibited abortion, able to throw all of the resources they had been putting towards ending legal abortion now towards the kind of material and policy support for mothers who are otherwise in um, in dire straits who might have been um, tempted or bullied or um, steered towards abortion in the first place. How fast can they change gear? And I think it will be interesting to see how bishops in the sort of self-described haven states of New York, Massachusetts, California, uh, choose to answer the fact that, you know, if if abortion was the primary social concern of the church in the United States prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, it is absolutely, in my opinion, the primary social concern in, in those states now, um, even if it is no longer in, say, Texas or Mississippi or Alabama or other states that have yeah. either outlawed it or passed significant restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, we'll see, I guess. I, I think that we will see also a lot more um, state. Now that state legislatures have the power to decide on this, the opinion of state legislators will suddenly matter a lot more. And uh, it will be interesting to see how bishops engage. I mean, the only bishop I'm aware of, no, I'm aware of two um, states where legislators have, who are Catholic, have um, incurred some sort of uh, sacramental discipline. One is Illinois and one is New Mexico. And it will, be, right. um, it will be interesting to see if that happens in, in other states now that it's not a question of sort of, you know, previously state legislators could virtue signal, could posture, could, you know, pass resolutions, all this sort of stuff, but it, it didn't functionally impact um, whether abortions happened or didn't happen legally in their state. Now they will. Suddenly their their actions um, have effect, and it will be very interesting to see how they are treated by their proper bishops now. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I wonder if bishops won't have enough on their plate locally that they will um, no longer be preeminently concerned with the federal level. I may be wrong about that, but no, I, think... I, I wonder... I think that I think that will be the case, but I nevertheless think that there will be some. I, I nevertheless expect that there will be some back and forth about the the question of sacramental discipline, the issue of sacramental discipline, and sort of how it's resolved. There's one figure who I think f- fits in interestingly into the um, into the conversation about that. Who can because... I ask, can I have a guess at who you're going to say? Okay, I think you're going to say Apostolic Nuncio Christoph Pierre. No, ah. No. Okay, tell me who you're because you Pierre say. doesn't exercise any jurisdiction. No, he doesn't exercise any, but he's he is the he is a one man bully pulpit at the conference. He is, and he might say some things, but there's one person whose actions I think you know are, are kind of figure in figure in an interesting way into the conversation because you're going to know who it is now, and you can say it as soon as you know it. His jurisdiction, his ecclesiastical jurisdiction, is is entirely a federal in, ecclesiastical jurisdiction. 
um, and that is the Archbishop of the oh, Military Oh, the Archbishop Service. of the, the Archbishop Military, military Service. Narrated Archbishop Tim Broglio. He is, in a certain way, I've just been thinking about this lately, Archbishop Broglio, the Archbishop of the Military Services, the Military Ordinary, is in a certain way Biden's third bishop. We always talk about Cardinal Gregory. Not, you know, people always talk about Cardinal Gregory. We always talk about the Bishop of Wilmington, whose name I forget so clearly I'm not talking about him that often. I think in this particular context, he prefers it that way. <laughs> I, I suspect the Bishop of Wellington Dollar is like, I'm totally we cool with people forgetting my Bishop name. Koenig. That's fine. Um, we were talking about Bishop Koenig, you know, the Bishop of Wilmington. But but uh, Biden, um, the president has another official residence. Do you know what it is? Camp David. Camp David. It's a military installation. Camp David has its official name is Naval Facility something something. Um, so, um, so the president's sort of other official residence is a military facility and the president is the commander in chief, which means that he sort of, by virtue of that office, ends up spending a fair amount of time on military bases. And when he does, he's subject to the jurisdiction of the military ordinary who is, uh, who, who has not been as reserved, I don't think about, um, sort of Eucharistic discipline has not, certainly has not been sort of outspoken in opposition to the idea of Eucharistic discipline or, or to, you know, support the sort of Gregory position as others, and um, and and also could sort of figure into this. You know, Biden periodically spends the weekend at Camp David. You know, I, there's a chapel there. I don't know if they have mass there, but there's a chapel there. Um, I have uh, I have uh, asked. Uh, uh, I reached out to the Archdiocese of Military Services to ask if there was any question about Biden receiving the Eucharist on military facilities, and I haven't heard back from them yet. I'm sure they weren't grateful that I asked the question, but um, but. I think it is an interesting sort of factor that plays into things is that Brolio, who is has this very sort of interesting relationship to the federal government, is not. Um, I don't think of the um, uh, of the uh, uh, Gregory mind on this. You know, might also figure into things, especially because um, you know he's a member of the conference's executive committee and is regarded, I think, as a leader among a lot of a lot of bishops uh, in the conference. And also, many people's hot tip for future president, given that they have to elect a clean ticket this time because um, Archbishop Gomez is uh, Archbishop, finishing his... Archbishop Gomez is finishing his term, and Archbishop Amen, the vice president of the conference, usually the vice president of the conference Finn gets elected president. Oh, thank you. Uh, usually the... Uh, thanks. Usually the vice president of the conference gets... Um, uh, see, conference stuff is supposed to be my beat. Man. I know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Usually the vice president of the conference gets elected uh, president, but Archbishop Vigneron, the vice president of the conference, is turning 75, and so he's not eligible, or will t- would turn 75 during his term, so he's not eligible to be elected president. So there's basically an open election, and uh, that's which has not happened in a very long time. And uh, and uh, Archbishop Rollo is among those who have been mentioned as you know a real leader who has the support of a lot of uh, bishops. So it will be interesting to see the extent to which he addresses this question or doesn't yeah i i will be i will i you now that you have drawn my attention to that i find it uh, a fascinating prospect and i will i i will give it my close attention i i would be surprised if archbishop Berlio decided to make this his problem i would um, be surprised about that as well but then again if you know some importunate upstart journalist in denver keeps calling his chancellor well i just have one i not suppose he might have to out of it but you know it's just just i just found myself curious i just find myself curious you know, because I think, as you say, when you get this, curious, oh, diocesan communications officers don't get to go home at night. All politics are local, but his local is federal, and that's a very, yes. you know, it's true for Gregory in a certain sense. Although Gregory also has a local thing, but all of Brolio's stuff has. Oh, Gregory's national. got a lot of state yeah, stuff. He's got yeah, most yeah. of Maryland, really. Right. My point is, Bro- Gregory has this sort of, you know, political Washington, but he also just has this archdiocese called the Archdiocese of Washington. Mm. Brolio's 
um, Brolio's sort of bailiwick, all you know, is all sort of connected to issues of sort of church-state relations and federal, you know, federal issues because um, his flock is con- consists of members of Catholic members of the military and their families and other people who reside on military bases and these kinds of things. Yeah. So does Archbishop sure Brolio have a military rank, an honorary military? No, rank? he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He because um, I know the chaplains all a are... chaplain. A, a mil, a pre, so to become a chaplain in the military, you uh, you need to have um, you you are commissioned as an officer, and you need to have sort of the um, endorsement of an ecclesiastical endorsing agency, which for priests um, is the AMS, and then you can be commissioned as a chaplain. But Brolio is not a commissioned chaplain; he's um, he's the head of the endorsing agency. Uh. I, it it would be cool if there was some some sort of hybrid, or he joined um, the National Guard or something like that. And well, you know, no, but I mean like a hybrid uniform was what I was thinking. That was part <laughs> Episcopal, Archiepiscopal cassock with sash and everything, but also had like you know, a rear admiral's um, rings on his sleeve and stuff. All be, of that time, nerds, when you thought that Ed was seriously opposed to the notion of sort of a Catholic, an integralist Catholic state, you learn. That he's not, and what Ed's really, really keen for are clerical military uniforms. Oh, I, I'm a strong believer in proper clerical dress. Um, <laughs> if for no other reason than we used to have the the right of reduction in canon law. And mm-hmm. I, I have I have long championed that for guys like Theodore McCarrick, um, having him resign the redhead was insufficient, that he should have been made to present himself in St. Peter's Basilica, where the Pope should have cut the buttons off and stripped him of... Um, First the first the cardinalatial red and then the the scarlet the episcopal scarlet and then scraped his hands and uh, and thrown him down the steps as we used to do in what yeah. I like to call the good old days. Indeed. Um, so you can't have that kind of fun if you don't have good uniforms to begin with. That's a very very good point. I'm very glad you raise it, and I suspect you're going to have more good points um, to raise Ed after this word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. That is correct. Seton is not just a distance learning Catholic school, but a publisher of its own Catholic textbooks. Some brick and mortar Catholic schools actually have even started to recognize the value of having their own Catholic textbooks with subjects other than just religion. So Seton's Handwriting for Young Catholics series and its English for Young Catholics series is in particular has been brought in and is now being used in um, sort of, you know, physical school footprints as well as in homeschooling families. Uh, And Ed, as you know, times are tough all over. And Seton's tuition is about one-tenth of of most other Catholic schools, and it makes Catholic education available in every corner of the country, even in rural areas where parishes can't support their own Catholic schools. Even without multi-student discounts, high school, uh, even without multi-student discounts, high school tuition is about nine hundred dollars, and elementary is about five hundred and fifty, and that includes all of the books, lessons plans, and services like academic counseling, grading, and record keeping. Seton is a nonprofit which does everything possible to reduce costs and keep tuition low and affordable, so as many families as possible can get an authentic Catholic education. That is right, and there are about seventeen thousand enrolled students at Seton right now, learning at home. And if you want more information, you can visit their website at seatonhome.org. To decide whether Seton Home Study School is right for your family, check it out at seatonhome.org. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. And we are going to shift our attention to Oceania, where, Ed, it is time to talk just a little bit about the Plenary Council of Australia. Australia 
the Church in Australia has been undergoing something called a plenary council, which is not the same as a synod at not all. Not even close. Um, <laughs> no, not even close. Um, a plenary council is an, an assembly, uh, an assembly which is convened in a particular in a, in a particular region of the church, um, in which um, bishops come together for the sake of uh, legislating particular law for their region. And um, in this case, the plenary council that Australia is undergoing right now is a meeting not only of bishops, but also of lay people, which is considering not only like particular policies for the life of the church in Australia, but also sort of general sort of um, positional statements and approaches as Australians consider sort of the uh, future vitality of the church and evangelization down under. That is right. They, I mean, what I, what I think is, this is the, this isn't the first plenary council of Australia, but it's the first one in about, I think about 60 years. Yeah. And um, what I what I love about the fact that they're having a plenary council is... It's just cool. It's a cool kind of ecclesial thing. It's a cool kind of ecclesial thing, but it shows seriousness of intent. It shows that, you know, they're not going to get together for a sort of loosely defined thing. They're just going to call a synodal way and just try and do whatever the heck they want while Rome screams over their shoulders saying, you can't do that. What do you think you're doing? You're not having a plenary council. And Australia said, well, we'll have a plenary council. That's that's why we have them in the church. This right. is, you know, we need to have um, a deep think about how we revitalize the the life and reorient the life of the church in Australia towards a prophetic witness in civil society. Um, make sure that we've got all of the emphasis we can place on evangelization. Look at our internal life and see where it's up for renewal, where we can, you know, have learned lessons over the last couple of decades, all that sort of stuff. I think it's it's a great idea. And we've been covering this final session of it uh, in in some detail. Um, you know, it's been going for a while. They had, you know, last year they had sort of an opening session and talked about a bunch of stuff and working groups and all that. And then that was kicked over to a sort of synthesizing committee that produced a big book of um, possible motions on, you know, all sorts of things, governance in the church, um, the equality of men and women, the environment, evangelization all all sorts of things and uh and they've been having some votes on it uh they had a they had a moment of high drama uh this week which was yeah, they interesting did. because they did and sorry go ahead no because one of the motions that we actually flagged when we first reported the the draft motions when they came out i think it was at the end of may was this uh this motion to petition the holy father to permit the diaconal ordination of Ladies. Well, I thought it was to to support the diaconal ordination of women, in as much as the Holy Father thought it was a good idea. Uh, well, it, I mean, the actual phraseology was to let the Holy Father know that the Church in Australia was strongly behind the idea of ordaining the ladies to the diaconate, and that should he be of the opinion that this could go forward, they would grab it with both hands and that the um, Council would commit the Church in Australia to quote consider women for ministry as deacon should Pope Francis authorize such ministry. Yeah, and this yeah. Uh, this got this got voted down. Um, I say voted down. It failed to attract the necessary affirmative vote to and pass. And we should say that the that the plenary council. So the plenary council that's going on right now. So one of the remarkable things about it is that there have been plenary councils in the history of the United States and other parts of the world, but they're but properly they're meetings of bishops because bishops have the power of governance and um, you know the legislative authority and these kinds of things. But this plenary council has invited many lay people to participate, and so you sort of have two things happening like in layers and on top of each other in the same room, a sort of consultative thing, which has no authority qua authority, and then a kind of definitive thing. 
which does have uh, authority, um, which is comprised of bishops. And um, I think that the vote that you're reporting on kind of um, won—I I think that the, the vote about women deacons did win ultimately support. There was a big to-do about it this week where people were kind of arguing about it and fighting about it and lots of to-do, but they amended it, and they amended it to say that um, should the universal law of the church be modified to authorize the diaconate for women, the plenary council recommends that the bishop, Australian bishops examine how best to implement that in the context of the church in Australia, which basically doesn't say anything. anything. Should the universal law of the church be modified to authorize the diaconate for women, the plenary council recommends that the bishops think about what to do about that. Well, yeah. I bet that if the universal law of the church were modified, whether or not the plenary council had recommended it, the bishops would be thinking about what to do about it. Exactly. So it did pass today, but it only passed because they took out well it, it, it's substantially sort of a completely different thing right yeah, yeah. okay a thing mentioning lady deacons passed, and so it, so at least two not thirds, what was proposed at least two-thirds of bishops supported that and then at least two-thirds of sort of the people in the room um yeah. supported that yeah well and but no so what was interesting is that when this when the original commitment and sort of attendant effective petition to the holy father in favor of this was debated and didn't pass on wednesday about 60 to 70 of the delegates uh, basically refused to resume their seats after yeah. the morning break. They kind of went on strike and said, uh, we're going to have a strop. We're going to have a sulk. We didn't win, and we don't like that. Um, I, I saw some photos. I don't know if you were seeing the, the pictures coming out of the Plenary Council Assembly in Australia this week, but there have been some photos. And there were some photos of the people at the back refusing um, to to resume their seats. And uh, I, I think it's fair to observe that this was not a diverse crowd that was objecting. I, yeah. I would say they were um, they were all elderly white ladies, if okay. not all, mostly. Um, and the balance were, generally speaking, elderly white gentlemen. Um, and there was, according to several of the people that we spoke to who were plenary councils, they said there were, there were tears, there was a lot of um, hurt feelings. And uh, there was quite a lot of finger pointing, apparently, and uh, efforts to intimidate that there was a real, you know, um, delegates, particularly female delegates who resumed their seats after the vote were being, you know, sort of pointed at and told, you know, we're, you know, we will remember this, that you, you know, you didn't stand with us and how dare you and, you know, this sort of thing, sort of acts of overt intimidation in, in the hall, which isn't great. When this started to unfold this week, I was surprised because towards the beginning of the plenary council, I was talking with an Australian bishop in an off-the-record conversation. Don't try and guess who it is. It's not who you think. I won't, I won't guess. Well, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to oh, listeners okay. who are notorious for trying to guess who it is when I say talking to someone. I was talking to an Australian bishop that you don't know. She lives <laughs> in Canada, you know. Um, and uh, no, <laughs> that was it. I was talking to an Australian bishop, uh, and uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not someone who you think it is. And I was sort of asking them how they thought it was going to go and what they thought would be contentious. And one of the things that the Australian, this Australian bishop said that I just thought was very interesting is he said, look, now this was in the throes of the U.S. bishops having their fight. But he said, look, we're not, we're not the American bishops. There's not the kind of division, especially over sort of ideological or cultural war issues between us that there is in the United States. The church in Australia, which is a mi- far more of a minority, you know, in, 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 in culture, you know, and uh, far more accustomed to sort of being having a Catholic identity in the in the context of a highly secular society is far more unified and homogenous than the divided political culture war church in the U.S. And when he said that, I thought, oh, wow, I, you know, I wonder if that will be the case. No, it did not turn out to be the case. This week there was a big, I mean, as big as the June thing was for the U.S. bishops last summer was this, I think, 
for the Australian Plenary Council, where we basically had people sort of not wanting to even sit down and finish finish the meeting. So okay, sort of but in fairness, that wasn't the bishops. It wasn't the bishops who were divided among themselves. It was the this stroppy minority of lay people who didn't get their way. But I do think I think that's true. But I do think that ha- I don't think just based upon sort of what I've observed about the thing. I do think that there were bishops who sort of were supporting that. I don't think it was all of the bishops taking one position and, um, you know, a bunch no, of lay but, people taking another position. I think that no, there were bishops who had honestly encouraged kind of this sort of thing. Oh, Because of their absolutely. own agenda or perspective or whatever. For sure. And there, but my point is, there's definitely, there was a minority of bishops in favor of um, sort of encouraging this along. And I, I heard from people there who said, you know, yeah, there's it's these three bishops who are responsible for sort of stoking the fire of this and building the expectations and leading people to believe that they could deliver something they frankly didn't have the votes to deliver. Um, and, and that's all true. But my point is the bishops weren't having it out with each other during the council that the people who refused to resume their seats were not bishops. They were um, auditors of the council, periti, um, lay, lay consultors to the council. They weren't, they weren't the bishops themselves. And and I do think that's interesting. I also thought it was interesting that there were, I mean, we had, I, we'd flagged three real proposals that looked um, potentially controversial going into this this plenary council se- session when we flagged them in end of May or first week of June, I forget which it was. And they were um, this call for female ordination of deacons, um, this petition to Rome to change canon law to allow lay people to give homilies. To preach homilies, which didn't pass. Which did not pass; that was right. rejected, and um, a call to Rome for permission to bring back a broadened use of general absolution instead of individual confession. Now that did pass, yeah. And I, I don't know. I find it telling that of you know a, a sort of what looked to me like a pretty aggressive progressive agenda of saying we want lady deacons, we want lay homilies, and we want general absolution. Basically, two of the three of them failed. Yeah, and the one that um, you know past was the ones like well this does exist in canon law we're not asking them to do something completely new or change anything we're just asking for broadened usage of a thing that already exists Mm -hmm. i find that very interesting and i and and that it happened in the face of a very by all accounts angry minority demanding their way um in having come in with high expectations in a very highly organized manner because i mean this is what i was told by several of the people i spoke to who were there and in the room said you know, the, the the sense was palpable that people were upset because the script hadn't been followed. Right. That for all of the talk of, you know, we're here to listen to the spirit, we're here to discern, we, you know, we need to listen to each other. We need to really make a prayerful determination in the room, you know, on what, we, what we're discussing, what we've heard and all this sort of stuff that most people, and this is what one of them actually said to me is, well, a lot of people seem to come in here with a pretty set idea of what the spirit was supposed to say. And the spirit, I guess, didn't deliver for them. And I find this fascinating because, you know, a lot of people have been looking at the German synodal way and this sort of ever amplifying crazy that they've been getting up to, to the point where they've managed to make Walter Casper into a reactionary conservative. Right. Um, and everyone's been saying, well, this is what's waiting for us. This is, yeah, what, this the synod- is what the synodal, this is what the synod on synodality will be at the universal level. Yeah. That this and, is, and you have the get- very interesting idea that the Australian plenary council is a better harbinger of what the yeah. synod on synodality will look like. Well, cause no one can accuse the agenda uh, for the plenary council of being timid or, <laughs> or right. failing to represent, um, where, where there's support for it, a, what I guess you could call a stridently progressive agenda. Um, that was all there. It just, didn't pass 
and it didn't pass um, without comment. You know, it, it occasioned some ruction. It wasn't like that it was, you know, this was a completely bloodless event. You know, people were very charged. People were very engaged in this. It was not a, um, it was not a nothing burger when this stuff came out for a vote. But in the end, what came out of it was, no, we're not going to upend the the teaching and discipline of the church. And both among bishops and also among um, and also among Catholics. And one of the things that points out about bishops, I think, is very important that I sort of didn't point out before when we we're talking about the USCCB and how the meeting would go in November. Is we always say the bishops are divided. The bishops are divided. We don't u- we don't usually sort of offer a breakdown of that. And I, the last thing I would want to do is give a sort of sense that the bishops are divided fifty fifty over something like Eucharistic coherence. That wasn't what. It wasn't ultimately what the vote showed, but it wasn't sort it of what the more debate like showed. Yeah, it wasn't what the debate showed either. It seems that the bishops have been divided in the U.S. on some of some issues like this around eighty twenty, and maybe that it has grown to eighty twenty. Maybe I would have said I would something have said more like ninety ten a few years ago. And so there is sort of a growing sort of cadre of bishops who are who are holding these theological positions that might be described as more progressive. Um, but but it's not an it's not an even split, and among practicing Catholics, that that sort of, at least the Australian Plenary Council indicates that, at least among practicing Catholics in Australia, that that same thing is true, that um, most of the people who are in the room, people who practice the faith, were not people sort of calling for the Church to change her theology of the liturgy with homilies, or to sort of upend her stated theology of orders, or these kinds of things, but were, you know, basically, what I saw in the Australian Plenary Council was that most people were sort of trying to talk about what do we do about better proclaiming the kingdom? Yeah. And some people were sort of saying, well, how do we make structural changes to the, uh, to the mission and identity of the kingdom? Right. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was uh, not, those are, first of all, not the same conversation. And second of all, that was a smaller cadre of people. Now, you know, obviously I think that there are things which are systemically in need of reform in the life of the church, but, um, but doctrinal reform, sort of responding to a, responding to a question about evangelization by saying, well, we need to askew Catholic doctrine, um, is a very different thing th- that, as we saw in the case of Australia, was really only manifested by a relatively small percentage of the, of the people who were there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, 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 I oh, it'll be interesting to see whether the synod on synodality at the universal level goes that way. For all the talk, you know, the last few sort of synods in Rome, and it's unfortunate, I've said this before, but it's unfortunate that um, synods of bishops have become seen as these sort of like uber-political, highly consequential, um, charged theological debates when, um, you know, until relatively recently they were sort of very sleepy gatherings that, you know, sort of wonky and sleepy gatherings that came together for the purpose of producing a document that mostly got put on the shelf and wasn't read. And now they're seen as being like um, extremely powerful, influential, and important meetings such that the last few, uh, the Synod on the Amazon, the Synod on Youth, proposals that have been floated were seen as like, this could upend everything. No, it's a Synod. It doesn't have the power to upend anything. And I think what we saw at those meetings, even when you could say that the selection, you didn't have sort of a uh, a, a natural sort of representation, a sort of complete demographic representation of the American of the of the global episcopate. Even with those who sort of attended, you didn't see sort of radical, ultimately radical deviations from Catholic doctrines or passed as um, desires sort of of the of the body or something like that. They exactly. make a lot of noise. It's a lot of sort of flash, but ultimately, yeah. this is why when people overreact about synods, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's like no, it's actually just a meeting. 
Right. Um, yeah. Except in Germany, where it's not actually a synod, <laughs> as the Vatican keeps not telling you. You're not a having synod. a synod. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's not a, this is not a council. This is not a synod. This yeah. is just a bunch of bishops getting together with some radical lay people and basically announcing they're going to junk church teaching, which is yeah. what makes it so terrifying. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what, where, to the degree to which this portends the direction of the synod on synodality. But I certainly find it interesting. And one bit of reading that you should do, and we can talk about it next week, is that some dioceses have begun to publish their their own diocesan reports on the synod on synodality, you know, their local sort of results of the synod on synodality. And um, uh, I'll, I'll start compiling them because I think they make for interesting reading. I, I would agree with you that that would be interesting reading. Okay. Edward, a couple of weeks ago, you and I were involved in some conversation about um, celebrities, which was surprising to people who know us because we don't tend to know about that kind of stuff. But no. you and I think Michelle were talking about movies and you were talking about various actresses in movies and all of the actresses that you were talking about were named Jennifer and I was confused because I, I, I'm often confused when Hollywood conversations about Jennifers come up because there are too many Jennifers. Um, there are just too many Jennifers, period. If you're a listener whose name is Jennifer, I don't mean you, obviously, I mean the others. But there are just too many Jennifers for me to keep track of them in Hollywood or elsewhere. And um, when I told you that, when I said I can never, I can't keep straight the various Hollywood Jennifers, you kind of made fun of me with the implication that you have a great knowledge of uh, of all things Jennifer. And uh, I've been chewing on that ever since because you really sort of, you, you really implied to me, Ed, in a way that surprised me that you would have superior Jennifer knowledge to me. Um, I, do you still think that's true? I mean, do you really think you know Jennifers better than me? No, I just think that you're you, you are you're seeing Jennifer's behind um, under every rock and behind every tree. I it, it's my understanding that there are only two Jennifers in Hollywood. There's the Jennifer that's married to Ben Affleck, and there's the Jennifer that by law has to be in every Bradley Cooper movie. <laughs> well, I don't know who either of those are. In fact, I'm not sure there are either of those. But we are going to talk about Jennifer's for a little bit in a game Ed that I have devised called Too Many Jennifer's. I've been looking forward to this game for some time, so uh, yes. Okay. Now, Ed, you may or may not know this. Listeners, you may or may not know this. And again, listeners, if your name is Jennifer, this is not about you. You are unique and singular, and thank you for subscribing, and I'm talking about the other Jennifers. But, Ed, Jennifer was the single most popular name for newborn U.S. girls every single year from 1970 to 1984. Jennifer, let me say that again. Jennifer was the single most popular name for newborn U.S. girls every year. From 1970 to 1984. That's 15 years of more Jennifers than anything else. Uh, that's a lot of Jennifers. That is, that's, I, I will concede that that seems like a lot. Interestingly, Jennifer dropped, as a name, dropped out of the top 10 by 1992 and out of the top 100 uh, in 2009. So there are not, you know, the. the Wait, Jennifer, there wasn't a post friends bounce in Jennifers? The Jennifer moment, it seems, is is over. But, um, You're telling the, me that when Friends aired, we didn't get a mid-90s, like, everyone named their daughter Jennifer because of no Jennifer Aniston? No one on Friends was named Jennifer. No, but Jennifer Aniston was in Friends. I don't know who that is. Uh, Ed, the reason why um, Jennifer became an extremely popular movie in 1970, do you know? Um, Listeners, do you know? Shout it, shout it into your... Shout it out there in Radioland if you know it. I have no idea Can why. Can you hear it? It's Love Story. The, a very, very popular 1970 movie called Love Story... Uh, in which the protagonist was a lovely girl named Jenny. Uh, love story kicked off a Jennifer boom like you wouldn't, like you wouldn't believe. I have never heard of this film. Well, it's it's obviously highly influential in American Apparently, public life and yeah. culture, and highly influential in, um, in 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 sort of what came next in Hollywood. So 
I, I haven't seen Love Story either, so I can't recommend it to you because I'll recommend it to you and then I'll have a horrible scene and it will get a lot of letters. But, um, you know, you might consider how influential it is. But uh, so there are a lot of Jennifers, Ed, most of them born between 1970 and 1984. You and I were born somewhere between 1970 and 1984, the 1980-ish side of that. Uh, so we probably knew. Did you have a lot of Jennifers in your class? I had uh, in my high school senior class, I had two Jennifers, yes. But that was in England. Uh, yes, but that was, I went to, um, I, I went for my final year. I went to a sort of international, mostly American student, international Got baccalaureate it. school. I think most of the girls in my high school class were named Jennifer. I can't confirm that because I don't know where my yearbook is, but insofar as I remember, most of them were named Jen. So some of them could show up here. Ed. But this Jennifer, the first Jennifer we're going to talk about is not a Hollywood celebrity. Ed. She is a retired diver who won 10 medals at the FINA World Championships. She's one of the best Canadian synchronized divers of all time. Which Jennifer am I? Am I Jennifer Canuck, Jennifer Abel, or Jennifer Lemieux? Uh, okay. One of the well, best Canadian. Be Do you know what cool. synchronized diving is? I yes, it's where people dive in pairs, and they. It's have amazing. To. It's a, it's an incredible. It's it's an extraordinary thing to see people do flippity dippities and twisties and tubidoos together so, at the same time. It's really extraordinary. I feel I I'm on firm ground here because we wouldn't be so lucky as to actually have a, a Canadian Olympic athlete named Jennifer Canuck. That would be great. <laughs> um, I happen to know Mario Lemieux is a hockey player, so you've just thrown that in there to distract me. So it must be B Jennifer Abel. Jennifer Abel, you are correct, Ed. You know your Jennifers. Although Jennifer Lemieux, I would have given you half credit for because um, Canadian, one of the Cana- be- greatest Canadian synchronized divers of all time, Jennifer Abel, is engaged to boxer David Lemieux. Um, they're set to be married any time now. So you would have gotten a half point because Jennifer Abel will soon become Jennifer Abel Lemieux. Well, well there you go. Well, okay. So one Jennifer up. Okay, Ed. Um, this Jennifer was married to Goodwill Hunting sidekick Ben Affleck, but you might be thinking of her other name. Well, this is, again, the, the, the two Jennifers I'm aware of was the Jennifer who's married to Ben Affleck and the Jennifer who has to appear by law in every Bradley Cooper movie. So this is Jennifer Lopez you're referring to. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, you... no, no. Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were married. This is, I know this. This is a real thing. You're not gonna. You're not gonna snowball me on this. I. I. I am correct. Jennifer Garner. No, Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Garner was indeed. You're. You're correct that it was Jennifer Garner. Ed. Ed Jennifer Garner was indeed Stop married. Stop saying Jennifer Garner. I'm correct. It was Jennifer Garner. I <laughs> guess Jennifer Lopez. Ben Affleck married was married to, to Jennifer Affleck from Lopez. 2005 to 2018. Are you ready to move on? Now, didn't you hear me say you might be thinking of her other name? Did you get it? Yeah, her other name was Jenny from the Block. That's, no, uh, Alias. She was an alias? I don't know. It was so is. freaking clever. Her I other name. Is. Okay. Jennifer Garner, married to Ben Affleck from 2006 to 2018. And of course, um, oh, she had a prior bond. So I was going to say in our mind. So, but she had a prior bond. So we'll just talk about marriage in a second. Here. Married from 2006 to 2018 uh, to Goodwill Hunting sidekick Ben Affleck. That's right. She's Jennifer Garner. This Jennifer, on the other hand, is engaged to Goodwill Hunting sidekick Ben Affleck, but before that, they were just friends. I, I don't know. Ooh, are you sure? Yeah. Well, Ed, I'm very, very sorry. It's, it is very hard to keep track of the Jennifers, and so I empathize with you, but this is Jennifer Lopez. No, no, they were not just <laughs> friends before. They were not engaged now, and they were not just friends before. They were a thing. I remember. They had like a port. They had that stupid celebrity <laughs> portmanteau thing where they like tried to make one word out of their two names. 
It is true that Jennifer Lopez, excuse me, was indeed engaged to Ben Affleck, but they broke it off. You're telling me Ben Affleck was engaged to a Jennifer, broke up with her, married another Jennifer, split up with her, and got re-engaged to the original Jennifer again? Yeah. Okay. So they broke it off. We're going to start. No, I need to, for clarity, we're going to refer to this as proto. They ended their engagement in January 2004. This was before Jennifer Garner. This is proto Jennifer. Jennifer. Proto Jennifer we're talking about. Jennifer Lopez, indeed. Proto Jennifer was indeed. See, this is why too many Jennifers is so freaking complicated. Okay. Uh, Jennifer Lopez was indeed in a relationship, uh, apparently, with uh, and engaged uh, to to Goodwill Hunting sidekick Ben Affleck um, from 2002 until 2004. They broke off their engagement. I believe and Jenny broke off their Deutero engagement. Deutero Jennifer came onto the Deutero scene. Jennifer showed up. Jennifer Garner, 2005 to 2018, is the, is the Garner period in Affleck's life. And then when that ends, uh, Lopez, she's available after her, you know, her very difficult uh, breakup with Alex Rodriguez, which you know, I don't really understand at all, but her very uh, difficult breakup with A-Rod, um, she's available. She was after- a, no, A-Rod was with Madonna. Yep. And then this, uh, I'm just telling you what the what the wikis tell me. Uh, a, Lopez was available. Affleck was available. And on April 8th, 2022, Lopez announced her engagement to Ben Affleck 20 years after their first proposal. Wow. Okay. Can you see why this is so hard? This is really complicated. I'm, I'm struggling with A-Fraud managed to date both Madonna and <laughs> Jennifer Lopez. I wonder why that didn't work out. Was it because he was cheating? See what this, I did there? I was Why? implying he was unfaithful in his relationships, but I was alluding to the fact that he was a serial cheat in baseball. Alex Rodriguez from the from the Yankees? A-Fraud? Yeah. He cut a deal with the feds, man. He was a rat. I don't know what that means in the context of baseball or he prison. He ratted out other dope jargon. He He did what? Google it. He I can't. I don't even know how to Google that. I don't even know what words you're saying. He ratted out other dope fiends? Yeah. Where did Alex he go? Rodriguez. You got to explain this to me. He was a, he was a dope fiend? What is that? He, he, no. During the steroid era of baseball, the tainted steroid era, Alex Rodriguez turned state's evidence. He he gave, he testified. He named names in exchange for not being prosecuted. Like he's a rat. I had no idea. Okay, Ed. Uh, moving on. This Jennifer. Um, let me just confirm this now. I just need one moment. You want to confirm that. You want to confirm a fraud and his? No, no, no. I want to confirm what I'm about to say because the likelihood is, you know, there's a possibility that I'm wrong. But this Jennifer, I just confirmed it, was never engaged to Goodwill Hunting sidekick Ben Affleck. (laughs) You found one? Okay, so this is. She is something of a dream girl. I don't understand that. Um, So I'm assuming that this must be the other Jennifer who's in all the Bradley Cooper movies. Could be. You're going to have to tell me. Is this Ed? Um, Jennifer Keaton, Jennifer Lemieux, or Jennifer Hudson? None of these are the Jennifer I was thinking of. Um, <laughs> all right, it, it was it was worth half credit last time, so I'm going to say Jennifer Lemieux. <laughs> I can't give you half credit. This is Jennifer Hudson, and it's always I always Who's Jennifer, about Jennifer Hudson. Jennifer Hudson was in Dreamgirls, Tiger Life. What is Dreamgirls? Dreamgirls is a movie about a doo-wop ensemble in the 60s a great great little movie actually i think it won an academy award or something like that and all right she was on american idol and she um i don't think she won but she was on american idol and she's now a movie star and she was in um 
uh, oh, she was in a she was in an Aretha Franklin biopic, and she was in. Oh, she's in Sing. She's the elephant in Sing. Have you seen Sing? You have a kid. Have you seen Sing? No. Oh, she's the voice of the elephant. What I what I'm so, understanding though is this is this is a Jennifer who can sing well. That is. What this I'm is a Jennifer who can sing well. I don't know about this next Jennifer though, um, but Ed, this Jennifer is feeling kind of hungry, or is she just playing? Is this Jennifer Hudson, Jennifer Lawrence, or Jennifer Everdeen? This Jennifer is feeling kind of <laughs> hungry, or is she just playing? Wait, I, um, okay. I'm going to say Jennifer Lawrence because I think she's the one who's in all the Bradley Cooper movies. I don't know what that means. There's the, Bradley Cooper is an actor, and he made a lot of really mediocre films for like a 10-year run there. Um, and in the same way that every time Matt Damon made a movie, they had to give Ben Affleck a big part. And every time Ben Affleck made a movie, they had to give Casey Affleck a bit part. Every time Bradley Cooper made a movie, they had to give a Jennifer a bit part. And I think that was Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, I am looking up now. She has indeed been in a couple of Bradley Cooper movies, although I don't think she was in Sahara. Um, so, you know. Sahara was a Matthew McConaughey film, wasn't it? Oh, I can never. I always. See, Ma- Bradley Cooper feels to me like the poor man's Matthew McConaughey. I think we he talked is. about he that in the last He absolutely is yeah. the poor man's Matthew so McConaughey. So I wasn't sure which of them was in Sahara, but it doesn't matter. Jennifer Lawrence is right, but you didn't get my feeling kind of hungry no, or maybe she's just playing no i have no idea what that means well listeners it's up to you to explain to ed uh this week my really brilliant clue i'm extremely proud of it ed has disappointed I will look forward me to having this unpacked for me because it, you are swine feeling kind of hungry maybe she's just playing i really wanted him to get it i embedded a clue in the option the answer options and i'm not giving you the satisfaction if you're at home you can google it if you don't know the answer but I would love it if you would just enlighten Ed in whatever way you find possible. I look and, forward uh, to finding because I have back no idea. Next week. Um, but Ed, would you agree with me? And you can just say it with me that indeed in Hollywood, as in life, there are simply too many Jennifers. I would say there are too many Jennifers in the world. There are not enough Jennifers in my life. <laughs> I currently know maybe one Jennifer. And I feel like now that you've told me how popular a name it was, for that decade like yeah. I, I i jennifers are underrepresented in my social circle yeah yeah well if you're out there and your name is jennifer ed would like to be your friend the pillar podcast <laughs> is a production of pillar media and ed and jd production i'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief and i'm joined by my podcast partner and pillar co-founder ed condon our executive producer is kate o- kate jennifer Oliveira, uh and we will be back next week 